Amen. Today, um, we're not, we're out of our regular routine. We had our Christmas message last week, and I just happened to be reading um, the book, Is Atheism Dead? Um, by Eric Metaxas, and just felt really compelled to share it. And I, as I was saying earlier, I realized how it went along with the cosmic battle that we talked about last week, because it's a battle that's going on right now. It's been going on for a little over 100 years in our educational system. Um, and I chose for our text today, we're, because we're not reading a passage, I'm not going to have you all stand and read like we normally do. I'm just going over two verses as, as the background text for this day. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, and the first half of 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. The age of skepticism really got kicked off by Darwin's origin of the species. Of course, there were atheists long before that book was ever published. In fact, a thousand years before Christ, David wrote, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. However, the acceptance of the Dar Darwin's theory that life is an accident of time and natural causes kicked off this, uh, this idea of a godless universe and made it seem to be in intelligent. Our universities that were founded to teach the truth of scripture um, and to raise up educated pastors that, that could understand the Hebrew and Greek and really, really become uh, expounders on God's word, slowly began to change. They began to put officials in who didn't recognize Jesus as Lord, as Savior, and who had accepted the Darwinian theory. And they would hire then other professors that thought like they did. And so our educational system began to change. Scholars began to look at scripture with what became known as higher criticism. That meant that they no longer accepted the Bible as the word of God, but were looking for flaws in it and trying to find contradictions and errors. Church education was replaced by public education. And behind it all was the push of atheists like John Dewey who knew that if you could train the teachers, that you could raise up generations of atheists. In the realm of psychology, the theory of psychological problems being caused by the repression of our baser instincts encouraged what psychology called self-actualization, which is really uh, the slogan of the satanic Bible, do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. Nevertheless, despite this massive effort that continues to this very day, the church has survived and a remnant has continued to proclaim the truth of scripture. What atheists didn't count on was the power of the word of God and the conscience that God has put within every one of us and this God-given hunger in the heart of man to know God. The humanist effort brought on an animosity toward those ignorant people of faith. You've probably heard that expression. 
The Bible was attacked, and those who believed in it were increasingly ridiculed as ignorant Bible-clinging folks who reject science. And they would say that our blind faith um, disputed what was obviously true in the discoveries of the scientific realm. But in the last 50 or 60 years, what was once called undisputable truth came under attack by the very science that they worship as the final arbitrator of truth. Even as churches were on the decline and atheism was on the rise, scientific discoveries started turning scientists into believers. It is becoming increasingly difficult to defend a godless universe. When we see the recent discoveries in the micro and macro realms, we can now say that it takes more blind faith to be an atheist than it does to be a believer. I think it makes perfect sense that as the indoctrination from the world becomes increasingly overwhelming, that God has been revealing greater evidence in the wonder of his creation. It's his desire, after all, that every man come to the knowledge of the truth. So it stands to reason that as the lies become more prevalent, that God would reveal more and more evidence for those who are seeking truth. So I, I would really encourage you all to read that book, Is Atheism Dead? by Eric Metaxas. It's a, it's a, it's a long read. It's over 400 pages, but it's just filled with the more recent evidence of the wonder of God, a collection of discoveries in the different realms of science. And I'm just going to present a few of them that, uh, that really hit me, that, that stood out to me. And the point I'm making is that true science will never contradict God's word. Salvation will always be by faith, but it is now becoming clear that it takes greater faith to remain an atheist. Or perhaps we could say that atheists are stubbornly denying the discoveries of science so that they might remain in unbelief. But perhaps worse than that, they continue to teach in our schools that evolution is science when they know it's completely improbable theory. In many cases, it's intellectual deception. In other cases, it's inexcusable ignorance. One can say that science is really coming full circle. The founders of almost every branch of science were believers in the God of the Bible. A number of them even declared that they were trying to discover the mind of God in creation. Several even credited with God with divine inspiration or providence with a capital P in the discoveries that they made. Then science began to try to define the world without God. But now, in the fields of astronomy and physics, biology and archaeology, we're moving back to that original concept of seeing God as the grand designer. Edwin Hubble and his 100-inch telescope on Mount Wilson discovered that our galaxy was just one of many. You know, before that, over a, just shortly before 100 years ago, we just thought those were all just stars out there. And then we found out, wow, they're galaxies like the one that we live in. 
He saw that what we thought were stars were those galaxies just like our own. And then in 1924, he discovered that the universe was expanding. Would it continue to expand forever? Or was it going to collapse in on itself over time? And his protege, Alan Sandage, was tasked with finding the answer to the questions that Hubble raised. He was carrying on Hubble's work, but now he was armed with a 200-inch telescope on Mount Palomar. A Belgian priest, Latmetre, postulated that if all was expanding outward, it must have all started at one point. Einstein objected, saying, that sounds more like religion than science. He tried to disprove it, but eventually Einstein's own calculations came to the same conclusion and it was dubbed the Big Bang. Why didn't Einstein's own Jewish faith cause him to consider it was possible? That's just one of many examples how scientific discoveries are hindered by a bias against the biblical account. Now, this whole idea of this expanding universe that started from one point was very troubling to scientists, and that's because it gave the universe a starting point beyond which no one can investigate. All we can discover is what happened when that event took place and not before. That singularity from which all matter came was a closed and locked door before time began. However, it's not closed to the person of faith who reads the revelation of God in scripture. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him not any, was not anything made that was made. What bothered scientists is that it gave the universe an age. Time itself was finite. This was a problem when it came to evolution. When creationists would argue about the complexity of life from, from blue whales to butterflies, that they could not be products of mere chance, the evolutionist would just wave his magic wand of time and say anything is possible given enough time. However, we now know time is finite. And that was a monkey wrench in their theory. Among other problems that we're gonna see shortly, it bothered scientists so much that they searched for ways postulating other theories to contradict this. Sir Edmund Hoyle came up with one that's, that was still around when I was in grade school, the steady state theory. But in 1960, the background radiation from the Big Bang was discovered and it ended the debate. That leftover energy, everywhere we look outward, we can see that leftover energy from that original explosion. There was an in the beginning. The laws of physics had not always existed. There's a point beyond which science cannot go. So back to Alan Sandage, who was a scientist who was open to wherever the evidence led him. He found that the rate of expansion was increasing, which is really unexplainable. It would not fall back in on itself, but just expand ever outward with increasing speed. In 1980, he became a Christian, though it wasn't until 1985 that he made a public stand. 
At a conference of scientists, the closing session was asked ask those who, the scientists who made their presentations to go on the stage and for those who believed in God to stand on one side and those who didn't believe in a God to stand on the other side. And to everyone's surprise, the renowned and respected Dr. Sandage went to the believing side. Not only did he believe in God, he believed in the God of the Bible. And he explained that the creation event had affected his worldview. He said what many knew but were afraid to affirm. And I quote from Sandage, I'm convinced that there is some order in the universe. I think all scientists at the deepest level are so startled by what they see in the miraculousness of the interconnection of things in their field that they at least have wondered, why is it that way? End of quote. It's recently been said that if you want to find an atheist, you have to leave the astronomy department and go to the math department, or I might say sociology department. Well, now we touch on the math department's statistical improbability. Christopher Hitchens, one of the most well-known atheists in our time, was asked of all the debates with religious scholars, what was the most troubling argument? His quick response was, it's the fine-tuned argument. The fine-tuning, that one degree, well, one hair of a difference. Even though it doesn't prove a design or doesn't prove a designer, you have to spend time thinking about it and working on it. It's not a trivial argument. We all say that, he said. That was quite an admission from a man who demonized religionists. And with more discoveries, the stronger the argument became. Why aren't we told that if the earth were just slightly larger or slightly smaller, life could not exist? Did you know that our nearly circular orbit and our distant from, distance from the sun makes life possible? Only a slight variation closer or farther would make our world uninhabitable. We call this the Goldilocks zone. It would be one thing if there were five or six of these just right conditions, but scientists have discovered hundreds of them. The odds of this happening are astronomical, pun intended. The discoveries have been piling up over the decades, but we face this anti-God educational system that doesn't want to admit the truths that lead to conclusions that they don't like. Carl Sagan popularized the idea that all galaxies, all the galaxies, there must be a planet our size with the right distance from the sun and so forth. There must be millions of planets with life. But as the discoveries mount about the exact conditions necessary for life, leaving aside for the moment the complexity of a single cell, the possibility of life out there went from millions to thousands to tens, to what a miracle that we exist. Sorry, Trekkies and Star Wars fans. Those weird beings are not out there. And yet we spend billions of dollars searching for life out there because we want to believe life just happens. SETI has searched the skies for decades, hoping for a, any pattern in a radio signal. I call that a shot in the dark, literally. 
If the Earth were just slightly smaller, the magnetic field created by our iron core would not be enough to protect the planet from solar winds, so our atmosphere would be stripped away. If it were slightly larger, our gravity would hold in elements that would make our air too thick to breathe. The giant planets of Jupiter and Saturn act like giant asteroid vacuums, running interference for the Earth. Just one of the larger asteroids would extinguish all life on Earth. Our moon is surprisingly large to compare to the size of our planet. And the fact that we have just one moon, you know, is really unusual. The other planets in our solar system have either none or numerous moons. The Bible calls the moon the faithful witness in the sky. It's amazing how the dimension of the moon and its distance from the earth and the size of the sun make it so that we have a perfect solar eclipse so that we can, could see the solar flares and be able to, to learn about those things. But it is in, incredibly large compared to our planet when we look at the comparison and ratio of other planets and their moon sizes. It's large enough that its gravity causes our ocean tides vital to our coastal ecosystems, which are vital to the rest of life on the planet. Earth is unique in that it has that, just that one moon and that size compared to other planets in the ratio in our solar system. We are also in the Goldilocks zone in our galaxy, not just in, in our orbit around the sun, but in our entire galaxy. 26,000 light years from its center. Okay. We're in the Milky Way galaxy. We are out there on an outer arm, 26,000 light years from the center of our universe. Can you kind of get an idea? Light takes, could go around the Earth, let's see, seven times in a second. 126,000 years of light traveling and you'd arrive at the center of this galaxy. Incredible dimensions. But we're out there because farther in and we would receive too much radiation. And, and if we were a little further out, um, the planets that are further out have, have smaller or no planets at all. Uh, I'm sorry, moons at all. The planets are all smaller as you get further out on the arm. Perhaps some of the most finely tuned factors are regarding the universe itself. The stars' interiors make all the elements that we find on Earth. English physicist Paul Davies wrote, the universe looks suspiciously like a fix. The issue concerns the very laws of nature themselves. For 40 years, physicists and cosmologists have been quietly collecting examples of all too convenient coincidences and special features in the underlying laws of the universe that seem to be necessary in order for life and hence conscious beings to exist. Change any one of them and the consequences would be lethal, he said. Fred Hoyle, writing in Caltech alumni, seemed to be finally coming around to believing. He wrote, would you not say to yourself some super calculating intellect must have designed the properties of the carbon atom? Otherwise, the chance of finding such an atom through the blind forces of nature 
would be utterly minuscule. Of course you would. A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intelligent has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The conclusion is beyond question, he wrote. I think God would have preferred the word designed rather than monkeyed with, but that's just what I think. Caltech astrophysicist Hugh Ross writes, at certain early epochs in cosmic history, the universe's mass density must have been as finely tuned as one part in 10 to the 60th power to allow for the possible existence of physical life at any time or place with the entirety of the universe. That's a big number. He goes on to say that it is so fine-tuned that if right after the universe beginning, someone added or took away one dime's mass, the possibility of life would have been destroyed. Steven Weinberg goes further to say that for the conditions for life to be possible, energy density had to be exact to 1 in 10 to the 120th power. I put the zeros up there just so you get an idea what we're talking about. We could go on and talk about the precision of the force within atoms, the fine-tuned electromagnetic force, or the perfect calibration between these forces, the calibration between gravi gravitational forces and electromagnetical forces had to be exact down to 1 in 10 to the 40th power. So put all these odds together. I mean, any one of them would be like, that's impossible. But put them all together and realizing that the universe is thought to have approximately one in 10 to the 90th power atoms. We're talking about every atom in the universe. These odds are way more than one in every atom in the universe. That's incredible. And it becomes clear that with these statistical probabilities, the only reasonable conclusion one can reach is that the universe was exquisitely designed for life. And maybe that's an understatement. I could make this a series of sermons and talk about the properties of water and of sunlight, things I never heard or considered that made life possible, but I encourage you to read the book. I must briefly address biology, though. How did we get here? Was man able to create life in a test tube? You know, if you're old enough, you remember back in the 50s, the scientists were able to make amino acids. It was 1952. And they said, well, we made amino acids in a test tube, so we, man can create life. But the best minds in science have not been able to produce one living thing. Well, they can borrow DNA for something and make something live but without borrowing it from life itself, they cannot, despite the billions of dollars of research since that experiment. Ironically, some of them claim that life came without intelligence. So what does that say about their intelligence? Did you know that there are 900,000 species of insects, 400,000 species of plants, bee hummingbirds that only weigh two grams, and blue whales that weigh 
400,000 pounds. Darwin suggested it all started with a simple cell. But now, thanks to electron microscopes, we have discovered the world within a cell. A so-called simple cell. Even the simple, quote-unquote, simple membrane around the cell contains an astonishing universe in itself. Outrageously sophisticated and watertight until it decides to let something in or out. Cambridge zoologist Thorpe said that even the most elementary type of cell contains mechanisms unimaginably more complex than any yet thought up, let alone constructed by man. Physicist Paul Davies calculated the odds of some cosmic soup endlessly breaking up and reforming would lead after a billion years to a virus are one chance in 10 to the two millionth power. Now, I would put the zeros up, but we'd be all day doing slides, looking at all the zeros, okay? This is like flipping a coin and getting heads six million times in a row. Geneticist Michael Denton writes, each bacterial cell is in effect a veritable micro-miniaturized factory containing thousands of exquisitely designed pieces of intricate molecular machinery without parallel in the non-living world. Then there's DNA. It's an instructional language. Does language come from non-intelligence? It consists of four molecules organized into complex instructions for the building of proteins that aren't found naturally occurring in nature. So now I hope I'm not boring you with all, all these statistics and scientific facts, but I want you to see that all these odds uh, that you and I are here by some accident of time and nature is a ridiculous improbability. But belief that it's just an accident is the great faith of atheists today. I, I think they have way more faith than I have to believe all this was just an accident. Amazing faith. We must educate people about the lie that we were taught and the lie that's being fed to our children and our grandchildren in this fallen world. No wonder that the seraphim th sing, the whole earth is full of his glory. Creation is a marvel. Life is incomprehensibly complex. And that's why the psalmist says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows that full well. Finally, I want to just touch briefly on archaeology. You know, in that age of higher criticism that began about 100 years ago, it, it, that all their theories are taking a severe blow from archaeology. Many of those writers of that age suggest that many of the Bible places and names and events were all just made up. It's a fabricated story. But archaeology has made huge leaps in the last 100 years. Actually, archaeology, the science of archaeology only began a little over 100 years ago. And we now know that even some of the earliest Bible locations, such as the Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham's city, 
has been located. Names were found that matched the names in the Bible. Now, they may have been a different person, but it shows those names, those very names were existed and used in that time period. The town of Sodom and the other four cities of the plain, if you recall the story of, the, of Sodom and Gomorrah, it talked about the five cities of the plain. Those five towns have been identified with the ash layer that co coincides with the biblical time of its destruction. Historical engraved stones called steels have confirmed the existence of Israel back to 1200 BC during the age of the judges as well as the names of some of Israel's kings. King Hezekiah's water tunnel instruction was found in our lifetime. Skeptics said, the Hittites, never existence. It's a made up nation in the Bible. Archeology span discovered it was bigger than the Roman Empire. Some skeptics even claim that Jesus never existed. And yet Josephus and several Roman historians mention him. Archaeologists have found Jesus' childhood home in Nazareth, the place of his birth in Bethlehem, the very house in Capernaum where he headquartered his ministry, which was Peter's house, and the pools of Bethesda and Siloam. The ossuary, that is the, the limestone box of the high priest who condemned Jesus to death, was discovered recently. Numerous details of descriptions, both in the Old Testament and the New, have been verified by archaeology. One archaeologist stated that no discovery has ever disputed any event or location mentioned in the Bible. You might ask about some of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century, Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, and Anthony Flew, were they not atheists? Well, Sartre and Camus trusted in Jesus before they died. I wonder why they don't tell us that when we study philosophy. <laughs> Flew, before his death, acknowledged the existence of God to the chagrin of his followers. His mistress claimed it was a betrayal due to his senility. The God who made the universe and our planet to be inhabitable inspired a record of his works in the earth. It is a reliable and trustworthy record. The heavens were made by the word of his mouth. He spoke through the prophets, but above all else, he came down as one of us to live a sinless life and take our sins and the punishment we deserved upon himself. He is the amazing Lord of creation, and yet he died for you and me. You can have the great faith of today's atheists and discount all the evidence as incredible, statistically impossible accident, or you can have faith to accept all the clues that God has placed for us in this age, the age of skepticism. As we read, read recently in Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Believe the evidence, brothers and sisters. Believe the word. Accept the grace given to you. Believe 
and let him be Lord of your life in 2022. Amen? Amen. We're going to close with this song, and then I'll give the benediction.